Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. If you've been listening to the show over the last couple of weeks, it'll come as no surprise to you that, as of tomorrow, Tales to Terrify is officially open for submissions. That means you can finally spill all of those dark and disturbing thoughts that have been swirling around in your head out onto the page and unleash them into the world. We're looking for clever, unique, frightening tales that take our genre to dark new places. Tales that worm their way deep into your mind to leave a lasting impression. All within 10,000 words or less, that is. For more details on what kind of fiction we're looking for and how to submit, visit talestoterrify.com slash submissions. I know our editors are ravenously awaiting some sinister literary sustenance to dig their terror-loving teeth into. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather not find out what happens if we disappoint them. Before we move on from last week's stop in the Crow's Nest Pass, I've got one more tale from this history-rich region I'd like to share with you. Just a few minutes west of the Frank Slide, which we explored last week, is the little town of Coleman, and somewhere hidden deep within the mountains near the small mining town is rumored to be a rich, concentrated vein of pure gold, worth millions. There are those who have dedicated their lives to searching for the gold, and a few who lost their lives in the process, too. But before you go packing up and setting off in search of the riches yourself, there's one crucial detail 
I feel like I should mention. The lost lemon mine is cursed. By 1870, the California gold rush had all but dried up. But that didn't mean gold rush fever had broken. The Yukon gold rush was still several years away. Stories and rumors drew prospectors further and further north. Every time there was even a trace of the precious metal, it created a localized frenzy of activity that drew prospectors from miles around. It was a group of just such prospectors who had arrived in Canada, crossing up from Montana in search of gold along the North Saskatchewan River. One member of the group, named Blackjack, brought with him more than just a pick and shovel. He had a reputation. His keen senses and intuition had led him to the discovery that sparked the Caribou Gold Rush in British Columbia about ten years earlier. And together with his partner Lemon, they were hot on the trail of an even bigger find. As the larger group explored along the riverbeds of southern Alberta, Blackjack and Lemon decided to break from the crowd and set off on their own. The two headed into the foothills, where they stumbled across an old, disused pack trail that led up into the fringes of the mountains. They followed the trail for days, as it wound upward and met up with a small meandering mountain stream. While Blackjack kept a sharp lookout for signs of gold, Lemon attempted to map their progress as best he could with crude scribblings. As they pushed through brush into a small clearing, they discovered the headwaters of the stream they'd been following, which burbled out of the rocks and around tree roots to join two other small streams. It looked promising. They tied their pack horses to a picket line, unsaddled their gear, and climbed down to the water's edge, pans in hand. It took only a few minutes of panning for the experienced prospectors to realize the riverbed was rich with gold dust. Fueled by excitement, they scrambled to set up camp. As they lugged gear from their horses, one of the animals pulled against the picket line, its hoof slipping dangerously close to the edge of the raised bank, showering dirt and rocks down into the water. And that's when Blackjack spotted it, a subtle yellow shine in the cleft of rock, opened by the horses pawing. In that split second, their discovery turned from a lucky find to the sort of treasure only spoken of in legend. As Blackjack and Lemon scraped away the dirt, they discovered a near-perfect seam of solid gold in the rock face, shot through with only the barest hints of rock. To say they were excited, I imagine, would be an understatement. The day was getting long, though, and they collected what they could before the light gave out. But it was clear. Mining this seam would take time. They could be here for weeks, even months, liberating the precious metal from its stone prison. They should head back to town, Blackjack said, map the route back to the town of Tobacco Plains, and come back in the spring. The fall air already carried with it a heavy bite, and there was no good reason to rush the collection of their new treasure. They could gather the equipment they'd need in return to build a proper camp. But Lemon was aggressively opposed. What if someone else found it? What if they weren't able to find the trail again? What if the local tribes took over the area and barred them from returning? 
they should set up camp with what they had and mine everything they could. It was theirs, after all. They'd found it, and returning with a sample would only raise the suspicions of others, create another race to capture what rightfully belonged to them. But Blackjack was more senior, more experienced, and he wasn't about to be talked down. After a heated debate that verged on violence, the two finally rolled into their bedrolls for the night and went to sleep. But as soon as Blackjack's breathing deepened and he began to snore softly, Lemon, who had laid with his eyes open, fuming the entire time, carefully crept from his bedroll and to the edge of the dying fire. The gentle red glow of the coals danced evil shadows across his face. His fingers curled around the haft of the hatchet. Lemon raised the tool, and without a sound, brought it down on the head of the sleeping blackjack, biting deep into his skull. The deed had scarcely been done when Lemon was flooded by an intense wave of guilt. What had he done? How had this happened? How had it come to this? Blackjack had been a friend, a mentor, but he was also a competitor. A chill settled deep in his marrow, and he bent to stoke the fire, feeding it until the flames were bright and high and crackling. But as the night wore on, over the roar and snap of the campfire, another sound began to drift out from the dark trees. Quiet at first, but gaining in volume and intensity. Moans of pain and anguish and betrayal. Lemon was terrified and launched to his feet. Who's there? he called. But the wails continued without so much as a pause to acknowledge him. Hatchet still in hand, he began pacing back and forth in front of the fire. The sound refused to quiet, no matter how much he yelled. And while he couldn't pinpoint where it came from, there was only one thing it could be. Blackjack. The thought needled into his mind, making his sanity more fragile with every passing minute. Unable to sit still, he continued to pace until the first rays of sunlight began to kiss the mountain peaks. As soon as there was light enough, Lemon hastily gathered what he could of the pair's belongings and headed back down the trail, leaving Blackjack's corpse behind. Two sets of eyes watched him go from the brush. Two young stony Nakoda warriors. They'd been tracking Lemon and Blackjack for over a day and had witnessed everything from their hiding place in the brush. The discovery, the argument, and the murder. The ghostly noises that had tormented Lemon throughout the night hadn't come from the vengeful spirit of Blackjack. They'd come from the two men. A gold rush, after all, was bad news for the local First Nations. And what better way to scare people off? Upon returning home, though, and relating their story to their chief, his response was not what they expected. He was rattled and immediately swore them to secrecy. As for Lemon, after several days of travel, he arrived at Tobacco Plains, where he sought the absolution of his friend, a local priest. 
After telling his story to the priest and sharing a sample of the gold, the priest sent burly local guide John McDougall to give Blackjack a proper burial. Based on Lemon's directions, McDougall found the trail without much trouble and worked his way back to the mine site. He buried Blackjack and erected a small cairn over the grave. Of course, word of the discovery didn't keep for long. The next spring, a fresh group of miners approached Lemon and convinced the unhinged man to take them to the location of the mine. But the closer they got to the location, the more scattered Lemon became, the more he mumbled to himself, the more lost and nervous and afraid he seemed. When the group confronted him, accusing Lemon of purposefully leading them astray, he became enraged, violent and incoherent, and attacked them. They eventually managed to subdue him and were forced to lead him all the way back to Tobacco Plains. But while Lemon returned in body, his sanity never came with him, and he spent the rest of his days living in the care of his cousin. After that, both the priest and the guide, John McDougall, attempted to organize expeditions to look for the mine. On the eve of leading one promising group to the mine, McDougall visited a local watering hole and began ordering drink after drink after drink of questionable local whiskey. So much so that, either by design or accident, he literally drank himself to death, taking the last first-hand account of the mine's location with him to the grave. The priest then organized another expedition, but this one was no more successful, turned back by raging forest fires. Next, a Métis explorer named Lafayette French took up the torch. His first expedition was turned back due to him contracting a severe illness that seemed to worsen as they approached the suspected location of the mine. Subsequent expeditions seemed to go in circles and were never able to find the trail. There didn't seem to be any particular rhyme or reason for the consistency of failures in finding the mine, French thought. It was almost as if the mine didn't want to be found, or something didn't want it to be found. Everyone who even got close either ended up lost, deranged, or dead. Adding teeth to the argument of a curse was his experience with William Bendo, one of the stony Nakoda warriors who had witnessed the tragic events of Black Jack and Lemon's initial expedition. At first, Bendo refused to share any information, but French pressed him, offering cattle and horses in exchange. Bendo initially agreed, but as they set off, a heavy sense of dread and terror seemed to settle over the man and he immediately changed his mind. Finally, after months of pressing, Bendo once again agreed to lead an expedition to the mine, and this time he promised he wouldn't back out. But the night before their departure, without cause or warning, Bendo dropped dead. Even without his guide, French wasn't about to give up, and set off on the trail himself. He disappeared for days into the wilderness, before suddenly surfacing again in a frenzied state of excitement. From a ranch in the foothills, 
he wrote a letter to a friend that said he'd located it and would explain everything when he returned. He set off again and eventually made camp in a solitary log cabin leading into the mountains. No doubt he fell asleep with the thought of riches dancing in his head. But when he awoke in the middle of the night, it was to blinding brightness and scorching heat. The small cabin was engulfed in flames. Trapped inside and horribly burned, French barely managed to drag himself out of the inferno and crawled for two miles through freezing cold and snow to a nearby ranch. It was morning by the time he arrived, and the ranch hands were all in the field. Exhausted and near death, French dragged himself to the bunkhouse and passed out on one of the bunks. That evening, after supper, as the cowboys sat around playing cards in the bunkhouse, a voice croaked from the darkness of one of the bunks, A little less noise, gentlemen, please. There is a very sick man in this bunk. The startled farmhands immediately found French and bundled him into a wagon to the nearest hospital. As soon as he arrived through burnt and cracked lips, he requested to see his friend, Senator Riley. I know all about the lost lemon mine now, he told Riley. I'll tell you everything in the morning. But whatever secrets Lafayette French had uncovered died with him in the night. There are a surprising number of people still searching for the mine today. As far as I've found, no one's reported discovering it yet. Although if they did, it sounds like the sort of secret you'd be likely to take to the grave. We have one story for you this evening, which comes from Gordon B. White. Gordon B. White has lived in North Carolina, New York, and the Pacific Northwest. He is the author of the collection, As Summer's Mask Slips and Other Disruptions, Trepidatio Press 2020. A graduate of the Clarion West Writing Workshop, Gordon's stories have appeared in dozens of venues, including the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12, and the Bram Stoker Award-winning anthology, Borderland 6. He also contributes reviews and interviews to outlets, including Nightmare, Lightspeed, Hell Notes, and The Outer Dark podcast. You can find him online at gordonbwhite.com. Children of the Night, join me for Gordon B. White's Paper Wings and Arrow Juice, a Tales to Terrify original. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This afternoon, after I finished talking with Justin, I found a very peculiar little fella. It's been all I could think about, and even at this evening's services, I could hardly focus on what the pastor was saying, given how my mind kept... Well, hold on. The point of this journal is to keep things clear and help me remember them right, so I'll try to tell it as straight as I can. I woke up this morning at the usual time and made myself toast. Thinking back on it, there was something a little different in the air. A sweetness, maybe, but heavier than just the guest soap in the bathroom or the bowl of dried potpourri in the spare room. It's funny, isn't it? How you don't think of those things at the time, but all the azaleas and the dogwoods are in bloom now, so I must have just thought it was the flowers. Oh, Harriet, this is why you're keeping the journal, to be more grounded and less forgetful. Lordy, this is hard. I just want to skip to the thing I found, but I shouldn't, should I? I did some cleaning watched some television. For lunch, I had a small salad and some canned salmon, low mercury. After that, I called Justin. He was working from home, so I got to talk to him for a while, and although I did most of the talking, it's just nice to hear his voice sometimes. When I asked if he was seeing anyone now, he was very, well, noncommittal. My poor grandson, it must be so hard finding someone these days that I just don't even know how one even begins. That's not why I'm not seeing anyone, of course. Dear George will always be my true love, so while I want the best for Justin, and everyone else, really, 
I just don't have any more desire myself to be coupled off. I'm really not lonely at all. Mercy me, I didn't mean it to sound like that. Anyway, after I hung up with Justin is when I found it. The Cupid. I had just settled back in at the television when I heard a sound like death. It took me a moment to realize it was Larry yowling and spitting from the front room, but by the time I got there he was hiding beneath the good sofa, and whatever he'd been at was fluttering and flapping on the ground. At first I thought it was a bird, but the wings, what was left of them, weren't right. They were tattered, but not like Larry or another cat had been at them. Or not just that a cat had been at them. They looked like, like newspaper fluttering, maybe. Or a giant moth with its powdery wings all crumpled and torn. It was a ratty pigeon, I thought, blown in from outside. A broken version of something you see every day. It must be. But then I got closer. Slowly, of course, you can never be too cautious. And boy, what a sight! The body of it wasn't any bigger than my thumb, and Larry had done a number on it, but it was a cupid. Cross my heart and on the Lord, that's what it was. A little man! pink and scraped to Dickens, but it had all its little dolly limbs and those paper wings, even a teeny winky that I only saw because he was naked as a jaybird, and his lips, I remember thinking, were like a tiny little bow, all red and arched, pursed together and stuck out almost like a beak. The Cupid looked at me as I drew up to it. Like little jewels, his eyes flashed up at me, and he scrambled towards a tiny little thing on the floor that I first thought was one of my knitting needles. But that poor thing, with its arms and legs scraped down by cat's teeth, slipping in the blood, and its wings soaking it up and still fluttering to beat the angels. The Cupid died there next to the rug. Not on it, though, so I didn't have to get the cleaner. Speaking of angels, that's how I knew it wasn't an angel. Well, first off, because angels don't die. Second, they don't have winkies or other downstairs parts. But also, the thing the Cupid was reaching for as it died, and I thought was a knitting needle, it must have been sharper than I thought, because I picked it up with the tissue, but it tore right through the paper, and one sharp end just barely grazed me. Just the tip, mind you, but, oh, Lord, the love I felt that night. All the way to church with the Johnstons, bless their hearts for driving me this week, I felt a bliss surrounding me from all sides, coming at me from the left and right and up from under the car seat. The air sounded brighter, and the colors of the trees and blossoms in the evening sunset tasted wild. 
I thought about borrowing someone's cellular phone to call Justin, but when we got to church and I saw the crucifix as you enter the chapel, I was overwhelmed by the shiny body of Christ. I thought, thought it was the love of Jesus coming through the moist air and washing me away, but as we sat there I began to realize it was something else. As I watched Pastor Jim move around during the sermon, his crew cut and his strong shoulders bobbing, well, I'm an old woman and I have modesty, but I still remember what it feels like there, you know where, when there's a more earthly kind of love getting worked up. That's how I know that it was a Cupid that pricked me, not an angel. And with that, I am beat and will go to bed. Even though Justin only lived ninety minutes away from his grandmother, it could feel like a different state. His glass nook of an apartment in downtown was the opposite of the home he'd grown up in after his parents passed and where she still lived. Here he was high above the ground and hemmed in by neighbors, buildings, street-level retail, and restaurants. Here it was always alive with the bustle that had seemed impossible just a dozen or so years ago when he was an out-of-place teen in eastern farm country. Any illusion of true distance, however, dispersed on those spring days when the azaleas in the building's common areas bloomed, and the dogwoods, reaching out from their planters in the pedestrian malls, threw open their tissue-thin blossoms. Despite sometimes feeling so far removed from that life, he was still only ninety minutes away. It would be half that when the bypass went in. And, he was reminded almost an hour ago when his grandmother's number peeked out from his caller ID, not even really that. Yes, Grandma, he said into the phone. From the kitchen table, his laptop gaped at him, its cursor blinking from a half-composed email that had sat cooling since the phone rang. Mm-hmm. He watched his hand crawling almost of its own accord, spinning webs of doodles in the margins of stale printouts. Yes, but I need to... Right. Mm-hmm. From across the open layout living room cum dining area, a key clicked in the front door. Shoulder first, Justin's boyfriend Tyler wedged his way into the apartment canvas bags of groceries dangling from his hands, and the unruly leaves of the day's mail clasped beneath one elbow like a broken wing. He struggled as the straps of one overstuffed bag clutched at the doorknob and pulled him out of balance. As he muttered and tugged at the bag, his sunglasses slid down the bridge of his nose, and he cursed as he craned his head to right them finally catching sight of Justin at the table. "'Could you just—' Tyler began, but Justin cut him off with a sharp look and pointed to the phone. "'Shh!' he pantomimed. "'I love you, Grandma,' Justin said, rising from his seat. He made his way to Tyler, protesting as he did. "'Really, Grandma, I'm fine. I'm not lonely, but I have to—' "'Yes,' 
But I have to go now, really. Okay, okay. Love you, too. Bye. Justin reached Tyler just as he ended the call. But Tyler, now freed, pushed by. Don't bother, he said, ignoring Justin's open hand. Behind the granite island that separated the kitchen area from the rest of the main room, Tyler set about putting the food away. Vegetables went in the refrigerator, grains in the cabinets, wine in the racks. Justin, unwilling to watch Tyler brood, thumbed through the stack of today's envelopes. It was nothing good, of course. It was my grandma, he finally said. You know how she is. Tyler had put away the last of the cleaning sprays under the sink and let the door sharply fall into place. He was silent for a moment and then took off his sunglasses, the crease of his brow still darkening his eyes. Does she know about us? Justin looked down at the mail. It was never anything good. I mean, he began, you know how she is. Seriously? Tyler tensed, and for a moment Justin expected him to erupt. He would throw his sunglasses onto the floor or sweep one big arm across the counter and wipe everything away in a single violent motion. It was like a spring storm building up between them, the sky ready to fall. But then it deflated, all the electricity leaching from the air without even a spark. Tyler turned and walked from the room. I told her, Justin called out. I just think, you know, some people only hear what they want. A foolish consistency is a hobgoblin, I think is how the saying goes. Anyway, it seems to me that it's foolish to run through every uneventful minute of the day when such exciting things are happening. Do you remember my Cupid? That's not a serious question. I know this is a journal and will not answer me. Well, today I found more. That's right. Today I found two of them, just crawling around the edges of the bread box. I think they were sniffing at the sugar cake inside. But when I came into the kitchen and saw them, I knew this was a sign. They were so set to their snuffling and licking at the sweetness around the edges that I managed to get them under a Pyrex with no problem. They looked a little put out at being under there, sure, but not angry. The two of them kept smushing their little faces against the baking glass, and they looked so sorrowful that I put a soda cap full of Mountain Dew under there for them. Oh, boy, did they go wild for that! I left them alone for just a bit to go to the bathroom and then tried calling Justin, but he didn't answer. When I got back to the kitchen, though, they'd guzzled themselves into a bloated sleep, and I noticed that they had dropped a little pile of those needle-shaped things. After the effect that last one had on me, and I still feel a little flushed when I look back on those pages I wrote while afflicted, I knew that these were Cupid's arrows, but I didn't know how they worked. Carefully, so carefully, I tipped the Pyrex up and, using my gardening gloves, picked up the arrows. 
With the help of my reading glasses, I could see they were more like feather quills that were not solid, but sort of like a hollow tube. Little silver strings of liquid stretched from the tip of an arrow wherever it touched anything, my gloves, the table, the tissues when I tried to wipe it away. I didn't dare test them for sharpness after the last time, but I could see that there was more of that stuff inside them. I've seen more than enough television with daytime doctors to know how science works, so I came up with a test. To start, I took the Mr. Whiskers treats from the cupboard. And boy, was Larry already in the kitchen as soon as he heard that box rattle, and I broke one of the arrows over it. A smell like fabric softener filled my nose, but I squeezed the arrow and let the drops of that, well, love juice, I guess, drip out onto one of the treats. I didn't know if Larry would eat it, but he did. Not only did he eat it, but he went wild. I haven't heard him yowl like that since before he was fixed, and even so, he was going simply crazy, having his way with pillows, armrests, the scratch post, everything. Finally, I just opened the kitchen door and he tore out back, sniffing the air and tail bolt straight like that old cartoon skunk. Well, I thought that proves it. As Larry streaked out to relive his pre-neuter days, all I could think was that now I have a way to help bring people together, especially Justin. My poor lonely boy, it must be so hard for him to find a good man. Anyone but that awful Tyler, really. The restaurant that Justin picked occupied the same space as the Thai bistro he and Tyler frequented the first time they were dating. But things moved so quickly that over the course of the cheating, the breakup, their life apart, and their recent reunion, that the place had changed into some kind of new American deal. Still, he hoped that the place still held some lingering sentimentality, even if the original faux-bamboo interior had been stripped out and reupholstered in plush darkness. He had chosen a public place because it was obvious that Tyler would not enjoy the evening's conversation, but the risk of him breaking something dramatically decreased when they were not at home. It was during the appetizer course, as he listlessly forked at his honey-roasted Brussels sprouts and watched Tyler tear into his rabbit roulettes, that Justin broached the subject of his grandmother. "'I'm worried about her,' he began. Tyler merely grunted as he smeared a forkful of meat in the rich sauce on his plate. "'When I talk to her,' Justin continued, she sounds more and more. The words wouldn't come, not ones that he could risk saying out loud and summoning into reality. She is pretty old, Tyler said. His plate cleared, his eyes turned to Justin's starter. Despite his annoyance at Tyler's bluntness, watching him wiggle his dark brows in comic silence to beg for just one morsel, Justin couldn't help but smile. 
Justin raised his hands in surrender and slid the plate forward. Perhaps a full Tyler would be a happy Tyler. It wasn't until their entrees arrived that Justin's grandmother re-entered the conversation. Although it would be difficult, or expensive, or likely both, Justin proposed moving her to a home nearer to the city. God bless her neighbors who, out of Christian charity, took her shopping and to church, but it didn't seem safe for her to be living alone. Justin braced for Tyler's response, but whatever sympathetic magic was still in the walls of the restaurant must have worked, because Tyler didn't yell or slam his fist or even give Justin the glare. Instead, he ground his mouthful of filet for a moment, swallowed, and then very calmly spoke. Did she say this? No, Justin replied. I haven't even asked her yet. Then you should let her stay. But I'm worried, Justin said. Tyler hadn't spoken to her recently, so he wasn't aware of how loose her grasp on things seemed to be getting. He didn't see how, although their conversations were on the same topics as ever, that week's sermon, who had died, who was courting, when was Justin going to find someone and settle down. But the whole tenor had changed. It was as if there was something too involved under her questions. There was another layer that surfaced as an uncommon intensity and inability to focus. She won't even want to come, Tyler said, so let's leave her be. A forkful of steak crammed into his mouth indicated it was closed to further discussion. But Justin wasn't done. Why do you hate her so much? Because she hates me. The juices sprayed from around Tyler's clenched teeth in the angry hiss. Justin felt the eyes of the nearest tables on them, but Tyler was oblivious. He seethed, and the tea-light candles flickered as the restaurant's magic began to crack under his barely restrained anger. She's always hated me, ever since we started dating, even before I— He bit back the words he was going to say. Even before anything happened, she's always had it out for me. That's not true, Justin said, although he couldn't remember if it was or not. Of course it is. Tyler curled his lips and shook his head, the way he did whenever Justin ought to know or do something, but was too stupid or weak. She wouldn't even stop trying to set you up while we were together. I was never good enough for her sweet baby boy. The room was hot, and all the wine in Justin's stomach was turning old bruises into deep red pools. Maybe you weren't, he said. Tyler snorted. That's her talking, not you. I love you, but you are such a granny's boy. Taking his napkin from his lap, he wiped his hands and threw it over the half-eaten meat like a shroud. I'm trying to reinstate a structure on these entries, because I feel like I may have gotten distracted. The diary form wasn't helpful, but also I don't want to lose track of my important discoveries, 
since I feel a little all over the place these days. When I start helping people, it's going to be very important to keep things in order. In that spirit, first, I found what I think is the Cupid's Nest. Well, no, I know it is. It's just writing it down makes it different, doesn't it? But it's in the spare room. It looks like a wasp nest, mostly, but larger, since the cupids are so much bigger. You can still see the gray and white print where they chewed up and spit out my newspapers to make it. It's clear that's what they've been using, because the stacks of the observer that I've been collecting have all these little Swiss cheese holes in them, and I've seen those little cupids crawling over it, cheeks red as cherries just working it like chaw and plopping it on bit by bit. The main part of their nest hanging from the ceiling corner is the size of a laundry basket, but there's another smaller section that looks fairly new, sort of stuck on the side of it. That part's the size of a small dog, maybe. I'm keeping the door to the spare room closed from now on, but dealing with that can wait because the arrows work on people. After I'd found the nest in the spare room, how could it have been growing there for so long? This is what you get for neglecting your hospitality, Harriet, even though the house smells like there are dried flowers in all the walls. After I found it, I couldn't help but notice the piles of little arrows littered on the floor around it, like droppings. Well, that doesn't make it sound appetizing, but nevertheless, I got my gardening gloves and scooped them up. It's late, and I'm tired, so I'll skip to the nitty-gritty, but after a rather trying talk with Justin this afternoon, I was in a sort. Luckily, I told him I'd prey on our disagreement, and I was fortunate enough for it to be Miss Sarah who gave me a ride to church tonight. It's shocking to me that she's all alone, given that she's still fairly young and has that pretty yellow hair, but during the service I couldn't help but notice she was making eyes at the stilt's oldest boy, Henry. He's a tall, sturdy one, and that got me thinking. So while we were saying our goodbyes after the service, I asked if he wouldn't mind coming back with us to change a light for me. He hesitated, but I might have acted a little frailer than I really am, and Sarah, bless her heart, said she'd drive him home after. It wasn't a lie, of course, because I really do have a light in the spare room that needs changing. Anyway, neither of them seemed to overly mind the other's company as we rode back. Although, when we got home, I'd have described them as friendly at best. I've made enough matches in my time to spot a real connection. I told Henry about the light in the spare room, but before he got to it, I offered them both a glass of iced tea with some of that arrow juice in it. Well, I don't want to be crude, but there was a tension in the air. 
Even I felt hot and bothered just watching from the side. I excused myself, saying I had to go outside and look for Larry, since his food hadn't been touched yet. Standing out there in the warm evening, the smell of honeysuckle hanging low on the ground, I called quietly to Larry, not wanting to disturb anything that might be going on inside. Oh, to be young and on the verge of that dangerous thing called love once more. Anyway, I was out there for a while without finding Larry, although I'm not worried. He is a cat, after all. When I went back in, though, there wasn't a trace of Henry or Sarah, other than their half-drunk tea glasses sweating on the table. The bulb I'd left for Henry to put in was still there, too. They hadn't left out the back door, or they would have passed me. And Sarah's car is still here. But I'm not worried. They're young and in love, after all. They probably went out the other side to take a walk under the stars. I'd thought to wait up for them, writing this entry as I do. But now that I'm done, it's well past my bedtime. Good for them, though. They're the first of many lonely people I can help now that I know the arrows work. So let them enjoy it. I'll call Justin tomorrow and let him know that I'm ready to help solve things between him and Tyler. He told her that he was with Tyler again. She told him she could find him someone better. He told her again that he was with Tyler and that he wasn't going to change. She told him that if he just came to visit her, she could find him someone irresistible. He told her that he and Tyler were together, and that if she couldn't respect his choice, he wasn't sure that these calls should continue. That stopped her. I have to go, she said. Sarah's coming to get me for church, but I'll pray on it. They exchanged their I love you's and goodbyes. Would that be it? Justin didn't have much faith in prayer, but despite his doubts, his grandmother called back the next day, eager to make amends. She only wanted to see him happy, of course, and although she wouldn't ever forget what Tyler had done, she could try to forgive him for Justin's sake. In fact, she wanted to do everything in her power to make things right. Justin cried. His grandmother cried. Tyler snorted, but held his tongue and, with some coaxing, agreed to drive down for dinner, only dinner, that weekend. Justin's grandmother said hallelujah and that she would whip up something special just for them. That Saturday evening, as they pulled around in back of Justin's grandmother's house, cicadas and crickets were going wild in the amber light. A million singing insects swam in the muggy air, and seas of grass around them, the chatter of their music making the air tremble like syrup. Another car was already parked around back, but Justin didn't recognize it. He hoped that this wasn't a setup and that his grandmother hadn't secretly invited another suitor. 
but if Tyler shared the same concern, he hid it well. He merely dabbed at the beads of perspiration already crawling from his hairline as they left the air-conditioned car and headed up to the screened-in back porch. I want you to behave, Justin whispered as he knocked on the door. Whatever happens. Trust me, by the end of the night she's going to want to kiss me, Tyler said. They don't call me Mr. Charming for nothing. They don't call you Mr. Charming at all. Justin knocked again and turned the knob. The door was unlocked, but his grandmother was one of those good country people that couldn't believe a neighbor would do her wrong. Out here there was nothing but the neighbors and the bugs in the field. Grandma? he called out as they entered into the kitchen. They entered, stepping into the kitchen where various dinner items remained half-made. The ceiling fan spun slowly above various dinner items that remained half-made. Breaded, but not fried, chicken. Okra that was washed, but not cut. A pair of gardening gloves sat like empty skins beside the sink. A pool of batter resting in a cake tray quivered beneath the oven light's red eye. Grandma? Justin called again. The house's single bathroom just off of this room was open and empty. She's probably just up front, Tyler said. His eyes roamed over the unmade food, but finding nothing ready to eat, he opened the refrigerator and began to rummage through. The house was a simple thing, barely one step up from a shotgun shack. From the kitchen, Justin could see through the open doors into the adjacent living room and the sitting room beyond. Their emptiness stared back at him. That left only his mother's bedroom and the spare room where she might be. Do you want some? Tyler asked, pulling out a plastic jug filled to the brim with iced tea. Justin shook his head, so Tyler sloshed out the thick liquid into a single jelly jar glass on the counter. He took a sip. Ugh! He shivered as he spoke. I know you all love this stuff, but I don't see how you can drink it this sweet. He licked his lips, however, and then smiled wide and bright, baring his teeth. He raised it to his lips again. Could you go check the bedroom and the spare room up front? Justin asked, as he tried to swallow his panic. Tyler grunted and strolled out of the kitchen, still sipping from his glass. Justin looked for any signs of where his grandmother might have gone. There were no notes on the refrigerator, nothing by the phone, she might have run out, it was true, but it wasn't like her to leave food uncovered and the oven on. If only he could find a number for that Sarah girl that took her to church, maybe, or the Stilts family? Stiltsons? Something like that. The shatter of glass rang through the house, and before he realized it, Justin was barreling towards the front. The spare room was open and when he threw himself through the darkened doorway, he gasped. Just inside the unlit room, Tyler stood like a dressmaker's dummy. 
The jelly jar's shards glittered in the remnants of tea, catching the wedge of light from the other room and casting it over a swarm of things like Justin had never seen. Already lapping at the puddle, they crawled and fell over each other, wings rustling like a thousand sheets of yellowed paper. Insects, he thought, bloated wasps or ants or something else awful. Then, between the tangles of their little arms and legs, he saw their smiling faces and pursed little lips. Justin screamed. He grabbed at Tyler's arm to pull him away from the little creatures that were already licking the drops from Tyler's shoes and clutching at his pants cuffs. Tyler was a statue, though, his eyes fixed on a pulsating bulk in the deeper gloom. A wasp's nest, the size of a couch, hung in the corner, its tattered gray shell throbbing as streams of the little creatures crawled from the chutes and cells. They shook their thick limbs and rattled their wings as they tumbled out and slapped onto the floor. Thick mud tubes spread from the central hive like crooked fingers daubed against the wall, shivering as the things scurried through them from other hives. In horror, Justin tried to take it all in, eyes growing wider to suck up enough of the paltry light to follow the tunnels. The next closest mass was a hive the size of a bread box but he recognized the four-legged outline and tufts of black fur sprouting from between its paper layers. Next to that, connected by the trembling tubes, was a massive knot of wax and daub that Justin could not untangle until he realized that the frayed golden strands through which the creatures crawled was a woman's hair. With that insight, the corpse's gnawed and pocked face came into focus through the shadows. Tyler! He shouted to be heard over the madness of the crinkling wings and walls. He wrenched at Tyler's arm, but Tyler shoved him, and stumbling from the force, Justin fell over himself to the floor. Lying prone, Justin watched his boyfriend walk across the field of glittering eyes, the things popping like Jerusalem crickets beneath his feet as each squelch made the air heavier and wetter with floral treacle. Crunching through the horde, Tyler made his way to the far corner where Justin finally saw the other man. The young stranger stood against the wall, his face placid, but body covered from the neck down, as if he were sleeping upright in a newsprint bedroll. A heavy tube from the other clusters led beneath the shroud, tying the man back into the grim tapestry. With everything revealed to Justin, for a moment the creature's rustling wings and the hive's trembling skin were waves on a distant shore. Justin watched himself watching Tyler sleepwalk over the sea of tea-drunk creatures, leaving great oozing holes behind him as he went towards the other man.
But then there was motion. The man's breast moved, up, then down. A breath, Justin thought, scrabbling back into the moment and back upright. Another. Then another. But it was fast. It was too fast. Justin stared as the rise and fall of the man's chest became an undulation, a wave that started in his belly and rolled up to his chest. The man's neck bulged, filling the loose skin, and his mouth opened as if to speak, but no sound came forth. Instead, it opened wide, wider. Past the breaking point, it opened with a sound like tearing paper. From inside that ragged hole beneath the stranger's dull, dead gaze, two new eyes peered out, pink like fresh buds. They twitched back and forth, taking the nest, the swarm, Tyler, Justin, Liquid darkness, shaped like claws, trembled within, and the broken jaw swayed. Tyler leaned in close to kiss the quivering bow of the other man's lips. I've had to start a new journal, but it's harder this time. The medicine, I think, might be making it difficult, but I'm going to try. This place is nice. It's not my old home, and some of the other seniors here seem so sad. But it's closer to Justin, and he comes by every weekend, so I don't much mind. I asked him when I can go back home, just to get a few things, and he keeps saying soon, soon. But it's already been, well, I'm not sure. I guess this is what happens as you get older. It's funny, because I remember Justin and Tyler were coming to dinner, and I had everything I needed except for enough sugar to make the cake icing. I called Sarah, but she didn't answer. The stilts, either. And so I'd run out myself, thinking I'd just be a moment. I must have gotten turned around, though, I hate to say, and I was walking on the side of the road when I saw Justin's car. I waved to him, and he pulled over, and things got very stressful. Is it my memory? Medicine? Just old age? It's all in bits from there. Justin got me into his car. There was yelling, and he was driving fast. I remember being in a hospital bed, I think, with a handsome young doctor I couldn't help but notice. Didn't have a wedding ring. Now, here I am. I'm getting tired. Must be the medicine, so I'll wrap it up for today. I'll just say that I'm glad to rest a spell and be around other people for a bit. I wonder if any of them have any grandsons that Justin might like. I think he's single again. Oh, and before I forget, I found one of those arrows in the pockets of the dress I was wearing that day Justin found me. But guess what? They aren't arrows at all. They're eggs, I guess, because one of them hatched. And now I have another little cupid in a covered drinking glass beneath my bed. 
Soon I'll be able to start helping people here, too, since I hate to see some of them so lonely. That was Gordon B. White's Paper Wings and Arrow Juice, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen McLean is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we put you under the spell of more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.